This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 25th of August. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. What do we know about the new National Children's Hospital? Well, we know we need one. It was first proposed in 1993. That's 30 years ago. When planning was applied for in 2016, the hope was that the hospital would have been open three years ago. Delay has followed delay and recently it was hoped that the hospital would open next May. Today, However, we don't know, once again, when the hospital will, in fact, open. We don't know either how much it's going to cost. Six years ago, the estimate was €650 million. Recently, that seems to have increased from €650 million to €2 billion. But realistically, today, the answer to the question is... Who knows? David Cullinan, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, David Cullinan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. I don't know if you can answer either of uh, those pertinent questions, when the hospital will open or what the final cost will be, but you've been very critical of Minister Stephen Donnelly in a a statement uh, that you've issued, saying that he's had a hands-off approach over the last two years, which has left him sitting on the sidelines. Why do you feel that is the case? Well, because I I put in um, a freedom of information request uh, at the time that this controversy arose again, and I and others had been raising concerns about the slow pace of delivery, potentially more cost overruns, problems, as you remember, with the operating theatres or half of the operating theatres where substantial works will have to be done to remediate a clear fault that wasn't remedied quick enough. And at that time, uh, I felt that the minister uh, did not know what was happening, the full extent of what was happening. So I put in an FOI and what came back was that for the entirety of 2022, 
and for the first quarter of this year up to April, the end of April of this year, the minister had no meetings whatsoever with the board. And I would, ha- I, I'm clearly of the view that given all of the controversies we've had with this hospital, and bear in mind, it was the National Children's Hospital that essentially brought down the last government. And there was a motion of no confidence that was going to be tabled in Simon Harris at the time. And then the government decided not to have that and called an election. So this has been, as we know, a long-running controversy. You've talked about some of it in terms of mm. the cost, starting out at 600 million, potentially now being more than 2 billion, all of the time frames that have come and gone. I would have imagined that the current Minister for Health would have regular meetings with the board because the board has a statutory responsibility to, in the first hand, ensure that there is a timely delivery of this hospital and that it comes in on cost. But it also has a statutory responsibility to report back to the minister. And while they may have been giving written reports to the minister, given all of the controversies and given the seriousness of this project and its importance, I certainly felt that the minister should have had more formal meetings with with the board. And when I was raising questions with the minister, it was obvious to me that he was not across the detail. And that's why I believe he was sitting on the sidelines. Um, wasn't as actively involved as he should have been. And it was only when we started raising these issues that the minister started to meet the board. And my understanding is he's had two meetings with the board since June of this year. And that was when we and others started to raise concerns. But the bigger issue at this point, Michael, is the two questions that are Mm. always asked when it comes to the Mm. National Children's Hospital are when will it be built, when will it be open, and how much will it cost? Would it be right to say, sorry to cut across you, uh, if we don't know the answers to those questions specifically, would it be right to say that we do know that it won't cost less than $1.4 billion and that it won't open as had been expected in May? No, we know what the, the most recent uh, programme costs that were signed off on by Cabinet was $1.7 billion. So the breakdown of that is $1.4 billion for the hospital itself and then $300 million for the two satellite centres in Tallaght and Blanchardstown, and for kitting out the hospital, and for mm. then the transfer of staff and all of the work that has to be done. So 1.7 is the minimum? So 1.7 is what was for, what was previously agreed by Cabinet. And mm. then at an Oireachtas committee hearing that took place just before the summer recess, where we had the board in before the, the Oireachtas Health Committee, they confirmed at that point that they have sought more funding from the Cabinet and from government and that cabinet is due to make a decision on that in September um, of this year, so very shortly in the next number of weeks. And it's estimated that that would be at least three hundred million, possibly more. So nobody uh, is of the view that the current cost won't be any less than two billion. But even with that, there's no guarantee that there won't be additional costs because that's to deal with all of the additional costs in relation to inflation. The delays in in the project meant that the longer the contractors are on site, the more money that obviously is spent and the more cost there are. But then separate from that, we have the 750 million euro worth of claims which have been submitted by the board. And while the minister was adamant yesterday that the contractors will not be getting anything near 750 million, and I agree with that, and I think we have to fight many of those claims that have been submitted, it's also accepted that uh, there will be some settlement and whatever that settlement is, uh, that will uh, incur additional costs. So I think we're certainly looking mm. way north of two billion being the final cost. We don't know the exact cost. What's more troublesome for me is actually the time frame for when the project will be completed. Yeah. Because uh, we were told it was to be August 2022. 
then it was to be September 2023, uh, then it was to be March of, of next year of 24. That was the government were adamant that the March deadline would be met. Then it became May, which in, in the most recent progress report that was submitted by the contractors, the, the most recent date that was given was May, and they, they would have uh, submitted a, a programme of works which is setting out how they're going to reach that deadline and what resources they will commit to the project in terms of human resources to make it happen. The board doesn't accept uh, that uh, report and doesn't accept that given what the contractors are saying that they can meet the, 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 the May deadline. But my understanding is another date has been issued by the contractors, which goes beyond May, but the minister won't make that public, which I think is a mistake. So the, the, the important point to make here, Michael, is mm. whenever the project is completed and it's now going to be probably in the summer of next year, it still takes six months for the commissioning of staff to happen. So the hospital cannot be opened for at least six months after the, 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 the building is formally handed over by the contractor. So essentially at this point, we're looking at possibly the spring of, of uh, 25, if not much later, maybe the summer of 25, before the hospital is open and treating patients. But again, that's all estimations. We don't have any clear timeframes and we don't know what new completion date the, the, the contractors have submitted to the board because the minister won't publish that information. Mm. I don't know. Uh, it, it sounds uh, as though it's um, not uh, inconceivable to think uh, that it'll take a decade to, to build a hospital and that the cost could be as much as £2.7 uh, when the original estimate was uh, £600 million. I'm not sure if it would be that high, but, it, mm. but the problem is nobody knows. Like no, I, I can't say how much the actual settlement mm. would be in terms of those uh, claims that have been made. Sure. There is a but it's possible, process. I mean, it's possible that they'll all be settled. It's possible that all uh, the claims will be successful. I would uh, and I, would I be. doubt that is the case. And just in a worst case scenario, that would make yeah. it 2.7. And it's possible that there could be more delays, which mean it would take a, a decade to, 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 to construct well, this 2.7 billion euro hospital. The point I would make, Michael, is I'm not going to put a figure on it and and then be held to a figure that the, the government have been. Oh, and I to. understand that. Yeah, I mm. don't believe that it's possible to put an mm. accurate figure. But what I would say is that while I don't uh, have a view that the, the entire 750 million will be paid out, I think there will be a substantial settlement, possibly in the region of hundreds of millions. Uh, so that will obviously have to, to to be added to the cost as well. I'm more concerned about when the hospital will open and what I've said to the Minister is that rather than giving us dates that are not realistic and, and pushing the contractors to give a date that everybody knows won't be reached, at this point we need honesty and transparency and we need a completion date that is real, that's based on, on realistic assumptions of what actually can be done. And obviously if the contractors are not playing ball and if they are not committing the appropriate resources, that is a problem. They've issued a statement recently to say that's not the case and they are committing all of the uh, available resources that they can. Mm. So clearly there is a dispute and there is clear differences between the board and BAM. And as we know, that got very difficult uh, just before the Oireachtas hearing where the, the board were skating of the contractor. And I certainly am not saying that the contractor is blameless. Uh, I, I'm sure there are issues that the contractor need to face up, face up to as well. But the reality is that the minister needs to be driving this. And if he hasn't, for 
nearly 16 months even had one single meeting with the board, then I think it's reasonable to say, in my view, that the minister was asleep at the wheel, wasn't as across this and on top of this uh, as he should have been, because the three main stakeholders to deliver this project, in my estimation, are the main contractor, BAM, who have a responsibility, the board, who oversee the development of the hospital, and then the minister, who they report back to. Um, And I don't believe that he has done enough to put pressure on both the contractor and the board to ensure that we do have a completion date that we can have confidence in. Because the Mm. problem now is nobody has confidence in any figures or dates which are being put out there because so many completion dates have been given that have come and gone because they haven't been based on realistic projections. I I was just thinking that uh, your uh, hope or estimate uh, that the hospital will be open to treat for children in 2025 seems very optimistic reading Craig Hughes's report in the Irish Daily Mail today he's been speaking to cabinet sources who are telling him that the government doesn't expect this to be up and running until 2026 well that would be extraordinary and I said what, what I was talking about was what the, the current position of the board and the government is so what the minister was saying yesterday was that the contractors earlier this year had submitted a new completion date and a new programme of works which indicated that May of next year is when the hospital would be uh, handed over, completed, built and then that six-month commissioning process would commence. And if that was the date, and I don't believe that will be now the date, but if it was, then it would be into October, November before the hospital could open. But then we were told by Children's Health Ireland that the hospital can't be opened in the winter, would have to be then the spring of, of the following year because it just wouldn't be possible to open a new hospital mm. and do all the transfers in the busy uh, winter period. So mm. what we're now being told is that that May deadline or May uh, um, completion date has been pushed out again. So a new completion date has been submitted by the contractor and, and a new programme of works and, and the board are evaluating all of that while at the same time involved in talks with the contractor around these claims to try and reach a settlement so nobody can say with any accuracy what the completion date will be but if it is 2026 i think we need to get to a point michael to be to be straight that we have um, a completion date that's actually realistic there's no point giving us more dates that throws a date out there to say we're going to do this quicker than people anticipate and then that day comes and goes at this point mm. given all of the failures given all of the problems we just need a date that's realistic, that the board and BAM agree this is the date that we can actually get this job done, get it finished, and here is then the commissioning works and will need to happen, and here is when the hospital will open. I think people would appreciate that more than getting all of these dates that are not realistic, can't be met, and then all of the additional costs which which come with that. There needs to be much more honesty in relation to what is the true cost of this. And, of course, there were failures by government initially in terms of the initial contract that was outlined in the PwC report. But I'll go back to the point again. We're speculating on all of these issues and it, it's flabbergasting to most people that it could be 2026 now before it's open when it was meant to be 2022 and the trebling of the cost. So imagine mm. in that context, a Minister for Health not having one single formal meeting with the board for 16 months of his term in government doesn't strike me as somebody who is across this, who is pushing who's holding all of the stakeholders to account and who's driving this project politically. Uh, And I think that was a mistake. 
Okay. I want to ask you about a separate issue, if I can, just briefly, uh, because I think everybody will see school uniforms around the place. The Leaving Cert results are out today. It is uh, the end of the summer, if you like. Uh, The winter is approaching, and with that pressure on the hospitals, the HSE has set new targets uh, for patients waiting on trolleys. No more more than 320 patients uh, to be waiting on trolleys uh, at any time. And anybody uh, who goes to hospital over the age of 75 will not have to wait more than 24 hours under these targets in an emergency department. Uh, You've said that those targets are unacceptably high. Well, I think it's, it's obvious to most people that, that those targets will be unacceptably high because I take the view that one person on a hospital trolley is unacceptable. And what we need to do is take a zero tolerance approach to hospital trolleys. And what I mean by that is it doesn't mean that when you take such an approach overnight, uh, magically people will not be on hospital trolleys. But what it does is it puts a strategy in place and it forces hospitals to get to a point where every day it has to drive down their numbers, improve their efficiency improve patient flow, deal with the capacity issues, and it can be done. So the example that the Minister has given, and I and others have given, is Waterford Hospital. Kilkenny Hospital is another example. In Drogheda, I think there has been improvements as well in the numbers of people on trolley. So where we have best practice and where hospitals have delivered, then they've got to a point, and Waterford have got to a point where there hasn't been a single patient in a hospital trolley for now over two years. And how did it get to that point? they adopted a zero-tolerance approach that we're not going to accept that one person on a trolley in our hospital in Woodford is acceptable. And over time, with good teamwork between consultants and nurses and staff, good patient flow, better relationships between the acute hospital management and community care, because you can speed up discharges when you have availability of step-down and recovery beds and home care and all of that, plus getting the capacity to the hospital needed. It got to a point where there isn't a single patient on a trolley. And ever since, they've just taken a zero-tolerant approach. We're not going back to patients on trolleys. That, to me, should have been the strategy across all hospitals, rather than saying that 320 people on any given day is somehow acceptable. I don't believe it is acceptable. You can never normalise people on hospital trolleys, and I think it was a mistake by the HSE and a mistake by... The minister and what they should have put in place is that zero tolerance approach, sending out a very clear message to the healthcare system and to management that we simply cannot tolerate people on trolleys rather than saying that a figure of 320 is somehow acceptable and would be some sort of victory because it simply wouldn't be. And we need to be taking that best practice that we mm. and what has happened in other hospitals and replicating that and mandating it across other hospitals to ensure that they too can get to the same point. So I think it was Mm. basically uh, uh, raising the white flag uh, by the government and saying we can't we can't reduce these figures, so the best we can do is reduce them to 320. And when it's clear other hospitals have done it, I I can't understand how they've arrived at that uh, formula themselves. I think it's a mistake, and I've criticised the minister for it. Okay, but they're the targets. It'll be interesting to see if they end up meeting those white flag targets at that uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. David Cullinan thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's Sinn Féin spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. I thought it was a mistake. Uh, it must have been a typo or something when I was reading it. Uh, but the Garda Commissioner has uh, told uh, the Irish Times uh, that he expects Gardaí to deal with about 
50,000 domestic abuse incidents this year. It's an incredible statistic. Let's speak to Sarah Benson, who is uh, the CEO of Women's Aid. Good morning to you, Sarah. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Not only does the Commissioner expect 50,000 domestic abuse incidents this year, he he told the Irish Times that in some cases, women who are brutally beaten, including older women attacked by their grandsons, barely survive and others do not. Uh, It is beyond belief, is it not? Unfortunately, it isn't beyond belief because that is very much the reality in this country and the Commissioner's figures, I think he was actually projecting them slightly conservatively because the Garda uh, response uh, to domestic violence call-outs has been increasing year on year. It was 44,500 in 2020 and then reached 54,000 last year. So what um, he's referring to by 50,000 seems mm. uh, a fairly safe estimate. That's but like yeah, a, it's absolutely a thousand, staggering. That's a, that's a thousand a week or you know thereabouts. Uh, and that's just the amount of incidents that Gardaí are, are called to. to uh, uh, there's obviously an awful lot more, as you say. Absolutely. We know that one in four women will be subject to abuse by a current or former partner over their life course. And indeed, there will be a smaller number of men as well. The highest risk does tend to be to women. Um, so, uh, you know, where there's risk of serious harm and indeed, as, as the uh, commissioner alluded to, uh, uh, violent death and women's aid does maintain the femicide watch in this country for uh, women who died uh, violently. And unfortunately, every year um, we are adding uh, adding further names to that list. It's um, the case, though, that most will only uh, call the Gardaí as a matter of last resort. So that figure is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the kind of the pain and the suffering and the fear that is going on behind closed doors uh, in households around the country. Is Ireland unusual in uh, terms of uh, the number of assaults that take place? I still can't get over that figure if it's more than a thousand a week if you take into account the women who don't call the guards. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note that domestic violence does not have to include physical violence. Of course, that would be uh, something on the higher um, risk stage, which might be more likely to result in the guard the call out. But you also have acute coercive control, uh, harassment, stalking, uh, all of these other factors uh, that go into a domestic abuse situation, a coercive controlling situation. So they may not all relate to physical mm-hmm. abuse, but what they will all surely relate to is an individual who is perpetrating not one um, you know, tactic of abuse against their, their partner or in some cases a family member, but multiple uh, tactics, sometimes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and that is what is so brutal about domestic abuse. It wears somebody down, it isolates them. Uh, it's never a once-off incident. So, you know, it is something that it's, it's, we welcome the fact that, that the commissioner actually alluded to the fact and made public the fact that this is a huge part of the work of the Gardaí because it is something that it should be a huge focus for us all in our communities because we want to prevent this, we want to reduce the harm um, and we want to reduce the isolation and stigma for those who quite wrongly may, you know, feel that they won't be believed or uh, that, you know, somehow this is their fault. We want to really be sure and putting that message out there that, you know, being subjected to abuse is, is somebody else choosing to do something to you. It's not your fault. Um, you know, it's it's confusing and it's upsetting and there is specialist supports there. Um, we have the National Domestic Violence Helpline, which is one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have interpretation in 
240 different languages and we also can directly connect um, somebody to their local services including our colleagues in Mead, in Louth um, for, for kind of more uh, in-depth one-to-one support. Mm, absolutely and it's a fabulous service uh, that uh, you provide for people we'll read out the helpline number again in a moment uh, but is Ireland in any way unusual is uh, the level of uh, domestic abuse similar elsewhere sorry Mike I didn't answer that question no we would be we would be around the average uh, for Europe um, the global figure is about one in three uh, women will, will suffer domestic abuse one mm. in four would be about the, the kind of common um, uh, statistic, and it's awful to just even refer to it as a statistic because you're talking about a quarter of the female population over their life course. We also know in Ireland, because we run um, our Two Into You campaign, uh, which is is around raising awareness and support for younger people, 18 to 25, but it's, it's also relevant for, for you know teenagers as well in their early intimate relationships, is that one in five young women will be subject to abuse by the age of 25, and 51% of them will suffer first under the age of 18. So this is something that isn't, we're not aging Mm. out of this as a population. This isn't something that's generational. Unfortunately, it's still something that's very rooted in, you know, Mm. some of those very traditional attitudes towards, you know, women more as being possessions. Um, We need to be educating our boys, our young men, as well as our young women on, you know, equal, healthy relationships. Um, You know, we we owe it to them to make sure that we we kind of um, pay attention and support them to to develop healthy, positive relationships and and not slide into... You know behaviours that that actually are perpetrating. Could, could could you forgive people though for throwing their hands up and saying this isn't uh, solvable? It's not something that's preventable because it happens on a similar scale everywhere else. Perhaps it's uh, something that's uh, gone wrong in the male DNA uh, that acts people uh, that makes people act this way, but they act this way it seems regardless. No, I think that that would be a bit of a cop-out, don't you? <laughs> I, I, I do, I <laughs> no, do, but I just can't understand what's wrong with so many men. Well, look, what I would also say is it's it's absolutely not all men. You know, if it's one mm. in four women, that's, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, what you have also is repeat victimization and individual, uh, you know, perpetrator will move from relationship to relationship. So it's, it's probably less than, than one in four men in the population. We also know that in countries where there are, you know, strong social messages around gender equality, where you have greater female representation, you know, in all sectors, private, political, public life, where you have, uh, you know, um, a, a more equal division of care, you know, that's caring for children, that that also, you know, that that also helps reduce uh, incidents of uh, both domestic and other forms of gender-based violence. And we also know that, you know, when we, we, we've engaged with men who are, you know, doing really good work on positive masculinities, that mm. that's also a really healthy thing for men in all their diversity and boys in all their diversity to allow them to kind of escape this very narrow definition of what it is to be a boy, what it is to be a man, you know, that anger is the only acceptable emotion, whereas actually, you know, expressing pain and vulnerability is, is really important for, for men as well. So when we talk about gender equality, when we talk about, you know, uh, reducing gender-based violence, those two go hand in hand. Mm. And, you know, ultimately it can be very positive things. We see the more repressive regimes, you know, the most acute ones like Afghanistan and others where, you know, the levels are, are far, far higher in terms of, um, you know, all forms of gender-based violence. So 
when we're looking at averages, it, it distorts the picture a little bit. Sure. We, hmm. we know that where we do this work, that actually things will get better. Yeah, I, I'm still amazed at uh, the level of abuse that uh, occurs. As you said, nobody should feel it's their fault if they're being abused. They're being abused. It should speak for itself and there is help there or a listening ear if that's what people need. The National Free Phone Helpline is open 24 hours a day. 1-800-341-900. That's one one eight hundred three four one nine hundred, and Sarah, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you, Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Let's well, speak uh, to local Finnegale TD Fergus O'Dowd about uh, this uh, drugs bust. Uh, good morning, to you, Fergus O'Dowd. Thanks for joining us. A lot of cannabis. Two hundred ninety thousand euro is the estimated value of it. Uh, it goes to show, uh, I suppose, there's still a lot of drugs in Drogheda, doesn't it? There is, of course, and I very much welcome the fact that the Gardaí have apprehended, obviously at least one individual, but it does show, as you rightly say, the serious drug problem there is in, in our town and in, in our whole country, actually. And, and it's obviously of great concern to everybody that, that this continues, you know, but I think, I think the arrest and the apprehension and the destruction of these drugs uh, would be, you know, be very welcome indeed. Mm. Uh, are you surprised at the size of the haul? Uh, because it, it would indicate uh, that there's no shortage. And I take it that this really is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's floating around the town. Yeah, well, I think it's quite clear that the Gardaí had, had prior knowledge and and they, they actually were aware and obviously had been, from what I'm reading about on your radio, uh, they had been alerted to, to an issue here. So that that is in, indeed very welcome, Michael. Mm. Yeah, uh, and uh, it was as a result of two raids, one on the commercial premises and then there was a, a follow-up search in a residential premises uh, and more cannabis was found there. Yes, yeah, so I think the main thing is that the Gardaí need all the support that, that we can give them. They are being very successful. They can't catch everybody, but clearly the more information they have, the more likely they are to apprehend the people who are doing these drugs and obviously putting these people away for as long a time as possible is the other side of, of that equation. Mm. And clearly by investing in the drug implementation uh, report and improving the facilities in the community to have families, first of all, uh, to have people who have drug addiction problems and to educate and inform people you know, as the danger of drugs, and particularly young people, particularly children, young people in school, I think is part of the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an approach that, that, that obviously we must continue mm. and sustain and, and, and improve. Were you surprised or, or disappointed uh, that the Minister announced uh, recently uh, that uh, the Drought Implementation Board is to be wound down next September? No, uh, in fact, that when it was set up, uh, the, the criteria that were, uh, it was supposed to have a, a period of life uh, for up to two years or whatever. What the minister has done, she uh, has extended the lifetime of the board for a further six months to allow for further implementation you know, of, of policies which have been effective. I've discussed it with her. I'll be happy, obviously, clearly to have it on the agenda with her uh, early in September. I think that nationally they're setting up committees 
uh, to deal with drugs uh, and to deal with other disadvantage and poverty in communities right around the country. The proposal at the moment is that there be one such committee per county, and I'm not happy with that. I want the Drada Implementation Board effectively, even if it's under a new name, uh, to continue. And I think that the so, issue... So you are disappointed, that, in fairness, that it's being wound down then next September? Pardon, Michael, sorry, I just... I, I'm sorry, I say you, you are disappointed that the Minister has decided to wind the board down next September. Well, what I'm saying is it was always the intention that it would be for a, a fixed period of time. Mm. The Minister is aware that if it does uh, wind down without an appropriate and continuing focus mm. on the issues, that that wouldn't be acceptable to her mm. or to me. And, and, and that is that is where the situation is right now. Okay, can I ask and you about this latest haul, though? I mean, it's a lot of weed, uh, as people would say. As you said, you can't catch everyone. Uh, should, should we be trying to catch everyone? I mean, this was uh, the situation in Germany, and they decided that the best thing to do was, instead of trying to catch everyone, and the the police going around, and all that goes with that, uh, the time that they spend doing it, when they could be chasing real criminals, as some would argue, uh, and indeed the cost of it, and then going to court, and the cost of it, and then putting someone in prison, and the cost of it, they've legalised it. Uh, as is so, the case yeah. uh, in many places. Uh, is that a route we should follow? Well, I think what's happening right now is those issues are being discussed by a citizens' assembly. And Paul Reid, the former chief executive of the HSE, is chairing that. And it's ongoing at the moment. I certainly, they will have a very significant report because, just as you're saying, they're consulting widely with everybody. They're, all of the information that is available internationally is available to the Citizens' Assembly. And if there is a consensus on an outcome, I think that's what we want. But the problem is, you know, if, if, I, if I have a, a substance that I've abused, say, even if it is, people say, cannabis, it does affect, uh, it, can, it does affect your judgment if you're sitting behind the car. You know, so so I think it's it's uh, you know it's it's it has to be appropriately and properly talked through, and obviously clearly, uh, obviously mm. this 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 people's uh, views would be fully and appropriately expressed in this report, and I look forward to reading it and obviously debating it with you as well. Okay, but can I? Yeah, go ahead, sorry to, to talk over you there. Um, can I just ask you before we wrap up about a, a completely separate issue? I'm going to be speaking to Colm Keena, who is a journalist with uh, the Irish Times, a, a little bit later on, yep. about the vote that's going to take place. Drogheda councillors will vote uh, on rescinding the freedom of uh, Drogheda that was given to Brother Edmund Garvey back in 1997. I suppose listeners. Uh, to this programme will be very familiar with the story. It's been rehearsed uh, many times over. Uh, as I say, we'll talk to Colm Keane about that a little bit later on, but there's uh, very negative publicity, I think, uh, for Drogheda today. I just want to read uh, part of an opinion piece in the Irish Times as well. Justine McCarthy is writing under the headline Enough Hand-Wringing on abuse by Christian brothers and she says when Pontius Pilate washed his hands of uh, the decision to crucify Jesus Christ as St. Matthew's Gospel recounts he listened to the people first local politicians in County Louth have not extended even that courtesy to a group of men who were criminally abused as children by members of uh, the Christian brothers uh, that is uh, not the type of uh, publicity, I suppose, uh, you'd like to see Drogheda receive. 
Um, no, not at all. But having read that actual article, I think Paddy McQuillan is mentioned in it as supporting the removal of the, uh, you know, of of the honour from from Brother Garvey, and I think there's other people who are actually out of the jurisdiction at the moment on holidays or whatever. Like it's a decision for the council, but you're quite right. I mean, the people of Drogheda would clearly express their views on that. Uh, to the councillors as 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 the, that vote approaches, and I've clearly made my personal views known, Michael, on your show that I believe that he should hand it back, and failing that they should take it from him, uh, due to the issues in relation to the abuse that these people suffered, and while it is legal what the Christian Brothers is lawful of their strategy, it is extremely upsetting that if I've been abused by a Christian brother that I have to send my writ to every single Christian brother that exists, you know, which is, means that you'll never get closure on the abuse that you suffered. Mm. And I think that's at the heart of this. Yeah. The wrong that was done uh, to young people by a small number, but an evil number of Christian brothers will not, you know, it'll never go away. The stain is always there. And if they're refusing to change their policy in relation to the court procedures, so notwithstanding that what they're doing is, is technically legal and it is lawful, uh, it, it is not acceptable to me. And I think, you know, that's why I, I would vote uh, for the removal of that honour from him. Do you think, Justine McCarthy has a, a point, uh, though, uh, in suggesting uh, to the councillors, the ten councillors in uh, the Drogheda area, that if they want a, an example in integrity, they could be, be look at Me the too. bottom of the rung uh, with Pontius Pilate. Yeah, well, I think the key point is, uh, the, 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 I know it's a county councillor in Dublin that is actually leading, mm. who suffers himself personally, Daniel uh, that he's, he's leading this campaign they should meet with him before, and, and, and the group of people whom he represents, before they take the vote, absolutely. And a day of a vote is not a sacrosanct legal thing, like if they have to put it back a week or two uh, to, you know, to, to, to meet them, to make sure everybody can be there, that would be appropriate and it would be just and would be proper. So there would be nothing, nothing at all wrong uh, with them either delaying the vote until they meet them or meet them immediately. And I think, you know, and they still have a right, obviously, the councillors to whatever opinion they would have. But I think it's really important to meet with the victims of this abuse. Absolutely, it is. OK, we leave it there for the moment. Many thanks uh, for joining us uh, today. Thank you. That's uh, Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead. Figure so out. Michael Reed on LMFM. The conflict in Sudan has been raging since uh, the 15th of April. The result of it uh, has been detrimental uh, to people in uh, the North African country. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says over 200,000 people have left Sudan and travelled into South Sudan. And concern is very, very worried that we're looking at another African famine. David Regan is uh, the chief executive of Concern. He's come into studio to us uh, this morning. A very good morning to you. And uh, you're good very morning, welcome Michael. to Thank the programme. Thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, today. Um, tell us uh, a little bit uh, about Sudan. Um, uh, is, is it um, any coincidence uh, that this neighbours, Ethiopia, where we're all familiar with a, a terrible famine that occurred? 
Well, the 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 problem of 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 malnourishment, and and we hesitate to use the word famine because it's a very significant word, and, and we did use it in 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 regard to the uh, press release we put out about Sudan. That problem of malnourishment is driven uh, across, particularly the Sahel region of Africa and the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, by climate change and conflict and they're having a devastating effect um i was i was myself in in kenya in in december and you looked around and 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 literally there had been no rain for five rainy seasons so there had been two and a half years with no rain the animals uh, of the pastoralists were dead um and uh, they were the pastoralists were surviving on the mm. on on the donations of the likes of concern and thank you to our donors for that but that problem is not kenyan or ethiopian or 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 sudan it goes right across to mm. chad and niger as, as well mm. so then you throw in conflict yeah. and in the sudan case you have this uh, relatively sudden escalation of a, of a conflict between uh, the army and, uh, and and a faction that that they had that they had engaged with for a no- number of years and the consequences have been devastating. Um, uh, devastating. The uh, concern reckons that there's 6.3 million people, uh, one stage from from famine within Sudan. Uh, we have team in there, but it's extremely dangerous to work. Um, it literally is a situation mm. where all of concerns offices across Khartoum and, and two other cities yeah. have been looted um, uh, by by the the warring factions. It's become almost commonplace, has it not, for aid workers uh, to be attacked. It, it, it is it is a dangerous environment, and we have to be extremely uh, worried about the security of our of our of our people. And yet, there's massive need, massive mm. need. Um, as you say, two hundred thousand went to South Sudan. There's another three hundred thousand have have gone to Chad, mm. um, and most of those going are women and children. And sadly, many of them are reporting that the, that the men have been killed um, on the on the way. So it's a it's a very worrying situation in Sudan. Mm. Well, with no rain for practically three years, uh, there's little or no food to begin with. Throw the war in on top, of, as you say, uh, and you say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Got a a dire situation. Uh, How are people surviving? It's very difficult to give a comprehensive answer in Sudan because access is actually impossible. I know just today uh, Concern received a, a, a batch, uh, tons of, of medicines um, into uh, West Sudan, an area called Dar Darfur, that we can use for distribution. But that was the first supplies we've got into the country since the, uh, the, the 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 war broke mm. out in 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 April as you as you as you as you indicated, so it's actually quite difficult to tell. We know from those crossing the border that they're extremely malnourished, and we know 
before there was ever any any conflict. For example, last year, Concern um, worked with 200,000 severely malnourished children supporting them in in Sudan. So you can imagine the consequences. Mm. um, And is that being compounded by the other war uh, that we're all familiar with, that we watch every day on the television uh, and uh, the grain supplies and the supply of food generally? It is being it is being compounded, and that's a broader problem across the world. So, you know, the food inflation in Africa is about twenty, thirty percent. So, we have inflation here, and it's significant here. It's even more there, and that becomes very problematic, particularly if you're living on on on, on very small amounts of food. So, if you take somewhere like. A, like Bangladesh and the, and the Rohingya camp there, which is where a million Rohingyas from, from, from Burma exist on, on rations from, 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 from essentially humanitarian aid. Those rations have been cut from $12 per person per month to eight, which is 20 cents a day. Put in 30, 30% inflation on trying to exist on 20 cents per day. You're looking at very, very difficult circumstances. Impossible. Um, and, and, mm. and, and, and that's happening right across the world because the food supplies have been have been essentially lost out of Ukraine, which has help, helped to balance the overall mm. nature of food um, in, in in Africa and Asia. Okay, it's <coughs> no surprise that we watch uh, the war in Ukraine or the Russian invasion uh, every day on television and uh, the terrible things that are, are happening there. I don't think uh, there is anywhere near the amount of coverage uh, in Sudan, as you say. Uh, there is a situation where it's close to famine. There's a terrible war that's uh, going on for months, half a million people on the move. Uh, what's the difference? Why is there less interest? Is it that in Ukraine we're talking about white Europeans and uh, in Sudan we're talking about black Africans? I think that's a very blunt way of putting it, but it's 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 very hard to uh, to escape um, you know, th- that conclusion. People are somewhat tired of hearing about problems in Africa. Uh, it feels like it's further away. Um, obviously, we're seeing some of the consequences of the conflict in terms of the t- dreadful stories around migration in the Mediterranean and so on. Ukraine is that bit closer, and and because the people are people, perhaps we relate to more easily. It, it's 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 better news. Um, and it's not to, 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 to denigrate the significance of the, of the war in Ukraine. It is a very significant uh, conflict, but uh, the scale of conflict in Africa is, is sadly even greater. Um, um, and that's just the reality. So I think Ireland as, as a country have mm. been very good at remembering the poorest countries in, in, in the world. I think we continue to do so, and, and, and long may that continue. And, and, and as concerned, we're very grateful to continue the support we get from all our donors mm. because it does make a difference. It yeah. saves lives. And there's always <coughs> great uh, support for concern, uh, no doubt. And uh, concern, obviously, uh, doesn't see uh, the type of barriers that uh, other people might see because of skin colour or location. Uh, and as you say, you're working on the ground in concern. Uh, Dangerous work, uh, you said, uh, but uh, is it possible to be effective under such dire circumstances? It's very difficult at times. Um, in, in Sudan at the moment, um, we have about 40 staff in Sudan. Um, some of our Sudanese staff have gone over the border to Chad and they're working with the with the refugees uh, who've, who've gone to, to, to Chad. Those who are there, they essentially have to decide in the morning, is it safe to leave my house um, because of the conflict around? Um, and that's the level of, 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 of fear that they need to have. It is a, it is a, it is a dangerous circumstance um, for all of the people of, of Sudan at the moment. 
um, there, we we just take our hats off to their courage. Um, uh, they, they 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 work away and they are very very dedicated. And as I say, they have been working away receiving medicines this morning um, in in West Darfur, which is a very dangerous uh, area of conflict at the moment, to distribute to those mo- 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 most in need. You'll see the same, sadly, in, in many places where concern works. If you go to Haiti, uh, the, the, the city there is a city which is essentially without government. Um, concern continues to work away. The staff there work uh, um, essentially on the brand of concern and the gangs let them work, even though there's conflict around them. That's the reality. So it's, it's this difficult scenario of managing mm. the security of our people and the very real needs of okay. those they're serving. Right. <coughs> uh, obviously, people are always happy to support Concern. I'm sure you'd like to encourage them to do so, though. Yes, I would. And I would I'd like to, first of all, thank those regular donors, that those people who contribute every every month to Concern. I mean, they are the ones who, who help us uh, do this work right around the world all the time. And these crises that are hidden, they're working on them in the background with those support. And we'd encourage others who can support Concern to please do so. There is a sadly growing need around the world, very sadly. And we as, as humanity need to respond. Okay, David, thank you very much indeed. And thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure to meet you and thanks for coming in to us. David Regan is Chief Executive of Concern. Let me bring you some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks to Eric Cuthbert, who's in Dundalk. He says, uh, concerning yesterday's discussion on pub closures, that's the result of the unnecessary long-haul lockdown and the smoking ban. It destroyed the pub scene, people's mental health is uh, 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 impacted as much as their physical health, uh, says Eric. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Somebody else uh, who's been texting us, uh, I think about Christian Brothers Abuse, uh, says small number, question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, There were more bad ones than good ones. The country was riddled with abuse in every parish. Uh, We'd uh, somebody else uh, then uh, who says, uh, can you please inquire from bus Aaron, is there any truth that the Dundalk Carrick Macross bus service is to cease operation next week? Wow, I I don't know, um, Jimmy. We'll uh, ask uh, about that and uh, try and come back to you with an answer before the end of uh, the program today. Um, We'd uh, another text uh, about domestic violence. Uh, We were talking about that earlier on, and somebody said, "I just realised I know four men, uh, and you're one of them. So uh, there's a possibility you're an abuser." if we are to believe all of these figures that were being given on the interest on side uh, it's the exa- it's the exact same figure one in four back in the year 2000 uh, thank you indeed valid points um, Sarah Benson did say that many men go on to uh, abuse that they're uh, serial abusers uh, that they'll abuse a woman uh, and move on to another relationship so it may not be one in four men but it, it would appear to be one in four women uh, who are uh, abused and I think those figures probably are out- outdated and it's probably more like one in three looking at recent figures but thank you indeed uh, for your message our text number is 0861 800 658 or you can WhatsApp us on that number 0419 
3000 if you want to ring us email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Independent TD Cahill Berry and Senator Gerard Crockwell are calling on the Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence to be recalled amid what they say are security issues for this country. Let's speak uh, to Independent Sarah, uh, Senator Gerard Crockwell, who's on the line now. Uh, and good morning. Thanks as always uh, for joining us on the programme today, Gerard. What are, are your concerns? Uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners, and thank you for highlighting this. Our concerns now are that our naval uh, service has been reduced from eight ships, uh, eight operational ships, down to two operational ships, uh, which means one is at sea and one is at rest. Uh, and effectively, it means we have no way of monitoring who's coming towards our coast, who's coming into our coast, whether it's drugs, people, um, whether it's fisheries protection, we simply have no sight on the sea. And with our air corps being restricted, we have very little sight in the air. So, quite frankly, we are defenceless at this point in time. We're vulnerable. Uh, and what are you concerned uh, because, why are you concerned or what are you concerned about because of that vulnerability? Well, the geopolitical state has changed, uh, Michael, in the last 18 months following the war in Ukraine. We don't know who's travelling down our coast. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know uh, the vast amount of data cables for the entire European Union passes through our waters. Mm. And we have no way of knowing if anybody is interfering with them. Okay. I'm sorry, sorry have we ever been in this situation before where eff- effectively there's one naval vessel to uh, provide defence at any given time, uh, two, two boats available, one, as you say, will rest while the other is on duty? Yeah, we have never been in this situation before. The figures coming out from the Department of Defence right now, right across the three services, Army, Air Corps and Navy, are frightening. The number of people leaving are uh, exponentially increasing, while the number of people joining are uh, in minuscule numbers. Um, Really, we have to do what every other country in the world has done in recent years. We've got to step back and put money into defence. There's no point in buying shiny new ships. We bought two ships from New Zealand there recently we have nobody to sail them they're down in Cork, they're tied up along with the other six ships uh, which, you know, it makes absolutely no sense and I think what I, my, my view of the world is that nobody in this establishment I'm in cares, mm. they just don't care Okay, uh, and uh, you're very critical, I, I think, as well, about uh, the way the cabinet uh, is constructed. Uh, because uh, while you're calling for uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Defence to be recalled, uh, you're also making the point that, in your view, this is the only way of dealing with this vulnerable situation that we're in now, because we don't have a standalone Minister for Defence. That is correct. Uh, we are the only, sorry, there are only two countries in Europe that do not have a standalone Minister for Defence, Ireland and Malta. Malta is about the size of Cork City. Uh, Ireland, on the other hand, has a population of now pushing up towards the five and a half, coming soon to six million, I would think. Um, uh, we, our our defence is totally and utterly left with nobody at the tiller. We have a junior Minister for Defence, but he has no role there. He has no... Uh, brief, he has no job, uh, he's just holding the title and I assume getting the allowance. 
Okay. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, the government indeed, uh, Simon Coveney, would argue otherwise. Uh, Simon Coveney, singularly, uh, as former Minister for Defence uh, and Minister for Foreign Affairs and Minister for Trade, I think those were the, the portfolios he held, he presided over the demise of the Defence Force over a period of uh, 12 years. Um, Simon Coveney has a lot to answer for for his period in time. Right. Um, that doesn't uh, leave people with a, a lot of confidence. I'm, I'm afraid, um, Michael, you know, I, I have serious concerns about the way this country has been run. I have serious concerns about whether or not our ministers are actually hands-on or whether they're just stepping back and allowing the civil service to do whatever they want to do. We see this morning uh, 15 million euros spent by the HSE on consultancy. Uh, we're, we're at a stage in this country where it seems consultants and private sector are brought in to do everything and we, the taxpayers, are paying an absolute fortune and getting nothing in return. Okay, well, that's pretty pessimistic, uh, if uh, nothing else. You've called for the Oireachtas Committee uh, to be recalled. Uh, Do you think that's uh, going to happen realistically? I do, yeah, I actually do. The do chairman really? of the yeah, the chairman of the Joint Directors Committee, Charlie Flanagan, is extremely concerned, I believe, uh, about the way things are going in the Defence Forces. He has been tweeting to that effect over the last several weeks. Uh, so I think uh, uh, Deputy Flanagan will be very, very quick to recall the the Defence Committee and get the Secretary General of the Department of Defence. Uh, who's paid a handsome sum to make sure that things run correctly, uh, get her in to explain to us how things are going so wrong and what policy she has in place to turn this around rapidly. Okay. A lot of serious questions uh, for the Minister. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. As always, Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. Let me bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Eileen in touch asking about the children's hospital. Didn't the government sell the lotto in order to pay for the hospital? What happened to that money? Because it seems the taxpayer is being crippled uh, again. Well, there'll be plenty of money spent on the hospital. You needn't worry about that. Uh, the question is how much? Uh, Deirdre says we need uh, the children's hospital uh, and uh, there's uh, no other choice. Uh, people can't get appointments uh, uh, and uh, there's all sorts of problems in the health service. Um, somebody else in touch with us about the hospital too, saying the dogs on the streets knew BAM undercut every other contractor when tendering for a job, yet um, there's been problems. Uh, they still get awarded these contracts somehow. Serious questions must be asked. There must be some connections between government and uh, BAM, thank you indeed uh, for that. Sean says if uh, the matter site for Children's Hospital had got the okay, it'd be up and running uh, at this stage. Whatever problem the matter site had to have it stopped would now seem to be minuscule to the utter disaster that we're now living with. The people who are to blame are those who objected to the site at the Matter Hospital, says Sean. Thanks uh, to everyone in touch with us uh, so far. 0419832000 is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 86 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. I did uh, read out uh, that opening paragraph earlier in uh, the programme from Justine McCarthy's opinion piece in uh, the Irish Times today where she says uh, basically that if 
Local councillors in Drogheda want uh, an example of integrity that uh, they could follow. At a minimum, they should look at Pontius Pilate, uh, who at least spoke to people. Um, she uh, Just to read some more of it, uh, Justine McCarthy says Drogheda has seen the pillars of its community let abuse victims down before. This is terrible reading for Drogheda. Uh, she says, this is the town where consultant obstetrician Michael Neary performed unnecessary hysterectomies on 120 women at 129 women at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Uh, she quotes uh, then from the official report into that from Judge Maureen Harding-Clark. There was a resentment towards the whistleblowers, talk that they would never get a job in Ireland, that they would be sued for defamation and would generally come to a bad end. Uh, Justine McCarthy also talks about Michael Shine and how when there were complaints about him that nine consultants wrote to the chairperson of the health board in 1995 calling for his reinstatement, a separate statement by 13 Ward sisters in support of Shine was submitted to investigating Gardaí. She says, just as Neary and Shine were respected figures in Drogheda, Brother Edmund Garvey is too. He is uh, the sheen of a, a well-known business family. The Christian Brothers schools he was in charge of have educated many leading lights of the local citizenry, uh, as well as uh, their offspring. Uh, and uh, that uh, possibly is why... Um, People uh, are reluctant to do anything. I think that's the suggestion in the article. Uh, but she says, what the Christian Brothers is doing to men seeking redress for the abuse that they suffered as children is utterly unchristian. Too often in the past, politicians turned a deaf ear to survivors' complaints, only then to jump on the bandwagon when those abused people were proven to be truth-tellers at state inquiries. Justine McCarthy concludes her article by saying on the 4th of September, that's uh, Monday week, Drogheda politicians will have had the chance to stop this meaningless hand-wringing and dangerous hand-washing and instead to do what anyone with an ounce of compassion knows is the right thing by passing the motion to rescind Garvey's freedom of the town. You'll uh, read uh, more uh, from Justine McCarthy on the inside pages of the Irish Times today, but let's go to the front page and a story that is written by journalist Colm Keena, who's on the line. Colm has done a little bit better than we've done on the local radio station because we haven't heard from the mayor. I don't think the mayor speaks to LMFM. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> don't ask me. Um, uh, but Colm, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you did get to speak uh, to the Mayor Eileen Tully and she's told you that she thinks that the vote, when it's taken on Monday week, should be taken in secret. Well, the, uh, she told me that um, the, 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 there's a lot of uh, what you described as aggro um, in the council about the issue or in the, in the, in the area about the issue and very strong feelings. And she thought, in that context, maybe it would be easier on councillors to, to to vote if they uh, were able to do it without people knowing which way they were voting. Mm. Uh, were you uh, able to understand why there's such strong feelings on both sides? I think she said to you that last month uh, it was akin to a public flogging. Well, no, she said there was murder in the in the council last um, last. Uh, time the issue arose last month and um, she the public flogging thing is more that the, the removal of 
uh, the uh, the honour of being given freedom of the city is a kind of a public um, a, a public dishonouring. Um, so uh, that, that was the point of the flogging uh, reference, and then mm. um, so you know that it was a, a, a not insignificant uh, step, and um, she on a number of occasions said, well, you know, it's 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 not directly related to what's happening in the courts and it won't make any difference to what's happening in the courts. And there's a lot of the uh, people who uh, remain in the Irish Christian Brothers organisation are very elderly. And in all those circumstances, she wondered what the point was uh, of the vote. Now, she didn't... Um, she didn't expressly say what her own view was, yeah. but she was wondering. She 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 was wondering what the point of the vote was, and she was anxious to make it clear that, um, you know, she she it wasn't because she was a diehard member of the church or anything like that. It was just in all in all the circumstances whether she felt there was a point to it yeah. while understanding the the sensitivities of the victims. Okay, well, I, I suppose uh, people listening to this program would be aware that uh, what the victims, Damien O'Farrell, and the people he represents are, are saying is uh, that there's a question over whether Drogheda should honour somebody who has presided over a strategy that has obstructed them from gaining redress as a result of being abused, sexually abused, as children by Christian brothers. Tell us a, a little bit more about that strategy because it's been condemned far and wide, hasn't it, uh, from within legal circles? It has, it has. And um, it's a very significant issue, just just more broadly, um, it's because there is this uh, legal problem with what are called unincorporated associations. So that could be kind of a residence association or a GA club or, or indeed a religious order. Um, and they're difficult to sue. And so the Law Reform Commission is looking at this issue at the moment. And um, indeed, the, the, the chair or uh, the president of the Law Reform Commission, um, the former Chief Justice Frank Clark, has commented on um, on the Christian Brothers uh, and the uh, use of this legal strategy, and made made it very clear, you know, that although it's legal for the for the congregation to use this strategy, it's a choice it makes. It's a choice it makes, and it does make very uh, make things very difficult for plaintiffs, and it raises very serious constitutional issues about people's right to have access to justice. Mm. So I can explain that in a minute, but it raises very serious questions about, um, you know, how the, how the, how our whole legal system works. Um, so, th- so that's it more broadly. And the Law Reform Commission are, are, are working on uh, proposals that the government can then pick up if they want and, and change the law in this regard, make it easier for people to sue uh, uh, unincorporated associations. Mm. Um, and then there's, there's also a second issue, by the way, of of um, it can be difficult if you do successfully sue an unincorporated association to get access to its assets. See what I mean? Yeah. So because they're they're not directly owned by the association because the association isn't a legal entity. Mm. So the Law Reform Commission will also look at how this. And in Australia and in Canada, they've had big debates about whether arising from huge sexual abuse scandals involving Christian brothers in those countries, um, 
whether uh, the law should be changed in to, to let victims get access to property and assets that are held in trust for the purposes of, you know, the the, the, mm. the objectives of the Christian Brothers. And they've taken different attitudes. I think in, in Australia, they changed the law so that even though this money and this property was set aside to, to educate poor children or whatever the objectives were of the Christian Brothers, they changed the law so that you could break that trust and get access, well, you could get around that trust mm. objective and get access to the assets so as to compensate the victims. And there's, took a different no, attitude there's no shortage of assets. Is there, Colm, you've written extensively about this uh, and you reported on the wealth of uh, the order very recently and you've also reported on how the Christian Brothers have tried to move some of those or there at least uh, solicitors for Kenneth Grace have suggested uh, that uh, they've tried to move some of those assets out of reach. Yeah, that's the allegations that has been made in the courts, and um, I think it was contested on behalf of the current um, head of the Christian Brothers in Ireland, David Gibson. But so what what happens is because you're an unincorporated association, you don't you there's no legal entity there that can that can own property. So let's say if I was a member of a, uh, an unincorporated association, I could own the clubhouse along with two of my friends. Who were also members of the club, and we'd hold it in trust for 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 the club. And so, with the Christian Brothers, they would own houses and and the headquarters buildings, and, and they own very valuable some very uh, uh, valuable bits of land um, as well. And so, individual brothers might own that property in trust mm. for the um, for the for the congregation. And some of those brothers have also been identified and made defendants. Uh, in the in some cases that are before the high court, uh, because the the strategy the brothers have adopted means that the the the, the people taking cases have to sue mm. all the brothers who arrive alive at the time in order to sue the, the congregation. Okay, because I've heard it argued locally here that the Christian brothers can't uh, afford uh, redress; they can't afford to pay compensation to victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian brothers who assaulted, raped and tortured these men when they were little boys because whatever assets they have, they need to look after elderly men uh, who uh, are coming to the end of of their lives. But that doesn't sound to be the case uh, from uh, what you've been reporting on. Uh, Well, no, because uh, I wouldn't think so because over the past while... um, the, the, the brothers have uh, transferred significant uh, amount of money to the state as part of the redress scheme for the institutional abuse uh, oh. of children who are in uh, institutions over the years. Um, and they still own significant uh, number of properties. Now, the, David Gibson, the current head of the, the, uh, the order, has told Damien O'Farrell that he has three objectives. First of all, to look after, well, to continue the the, the, um, the mission of the the Christian Brothers to uh, to look after its elderly members and to to respond adequately to the the victims, and uh, there can be a kind of a, um, a conflict there in that they might want to retain their um, as much money as possible and as many assets as possible. Uh, for the first two objectives, and and that makes them want to 
uh, reduce the amount of money they're paying to the victims. Certainly, the, the strategy they've adopted in the courts has been uh, described by uh, the counsel for one man taking a case mm. against the the the, uh, the order as a despicable uh, strategy designed with one with one purpose only, and that purpose is to make it so difficult for uh, drawn out and expensive for victims of child abuse to take a case against the order that people will feel disinclined to do it or inclined to settle their cases cheaply so as not to be put through the, the difficulties and the very, very substantial mm. difficulties. Uh, and that, that man was Ken Grace, the, who was whipped yes. as a, a 13-year-old by a Christian brother in a leather uh, set of underwear with a, a cat of nine tails, I think, in a, a dungeon in Dublin. Uh, years of abuse that went on. Tell us about some of uh, the problems that Ken Grace has encountered trying to get justice. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I think it's worth noting, noting that it's not an allegation of sexual abuse. It, it's it's a admitted sexual abuse and uh, the man, um, the perpetrator, uh, a former... Um, principal of Western Row uh, CBS here in Dublin, uh, Paul Hendrick, uh, he's in jail at the moment for doing it and is admitted, uh, pleaded guilty eventually. Um, the abuse happened over almost the entire duration of, of, of uh, Mr. Grace's time in the school. And um, he was vulnerable at the time. His father had died when he was young. This uh, this Christian brother seems to have picked him out and and groomed him essentially, and then um, the abuse happened in a windowless bunker in uh, cold bunker I think, um, in the school over you know years and years, and this whipping and inciting Mr. Grace to whip uh, the, the Christian brother and stripping down to underwear and like you say that uh, leather uh, underwear in part of Paul Hendrick and. Uh, it also the, the abuse also took uh, place uh, when um, when they were away in trips down the country, uh, the, uh, the property uh, uh, camping trips owned by the Christian brothers, and uh, so it was extensive uh, of long duration. And the effect that it's had on them has been enormous, as he's one of these people who says, you know, like he, he uses the word victim rather than survivor. That he's a victim of this, and and it's. It's a day-to-day struggle trying to um, get on with his life, given the damage that it, it did to him and which he continues to suffer from. Mm. But in pursuing that justice, uh, the brothers have put every obstacle thinkable uh, of in his way, have they not? That's right, that's right. The proceedings began in 2019. Um, they were lodged in 2019. So... Because the the the, 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 the the brothers don't put forward a nominee, that's what most other congregations do. You put forward a nominee, you say, right, Colm Keener will represent us for for the purpose of this litigation. Just like Colm Keener might own the clubhouse uh, as a trustee. Because they chose to do that, it causes it caused uh, very significant legal complications. Um, and so do... There, there was a row about it, a legal row, so to speak, and it ended up before a high court judge, uh, Neve Highland, and she made a ruling about, you know, about this case and uh, about how the matter should proceed. Then the the idea was, well, therefore, if you won't go, do a nominee, you have to sue the membership of the Christian Brothers 
at the time of the events. So as we said, they took place over essentially five years. Um, and back in the 80s, I think. And uh, so so they said to the Christian Brothers, well, will you give us the names of, uh, of the, the membership uh, during those years? And they said no, essentially. So then they had to go to court and get a judge to order. And this is all really expensive and time-consuming. Mm. I get get the list of, uh, of brothers, and there's more than 100, most of them very elderly men, and it's important to recognise that none of them had any knowledge at the time or, or involvement in these events in, in Western Row. And, uh, and um, then they had to get their names and addresses to file, to file uh, legal papers on them to, to advise them that they were defendants in this in these actions, in this action, and again had to go to court to get various orders and get permissions to do things, and so it's the whole thing has taken you know up till now just to get it into a position where where maybe they can hear the case uh, in the autumn. Mm. So it involves multiple orders from the high court, multiple applications from the high, high court, mm. and in one instance, now Brother Gibson, who's the head of the order, he is before the court. Most of the most of the other brothers just haven't responded, and they're not. They haven't chosen to get involved in the case to defend, to make any argument, to appoint a solicitor. But Brother Gibson is represented in court. And at one stage, the um, Mr. Grace, his legal team were trying to get a trying to get the names and addresses of people who were representing the estates of brothers who died since the action had, had begun. So they were defendants, but they were now dead. Uh, these brothers are very elderly. And uh, this was resisted on Brother, uh, the court was suggested that Brother Gibson might help them get in contact with these mm. people. And uh, the court um, uh, was told that Brother Gibson would be unfair to get Brother Gibson involved and it wasn't his job to, to, do, to help, to help in, in such a way. And um, the, the judge decided otherwise and ordered that Brother Gibson should help uh, Mr. Grace get in contact with the representatives of the estates of these people. And then it turned out that that person was Brother Gibson. And and the, the 13 of the 14 deceased brothers had left uh, uh, their estates to Brother Gibson. So it's an extraordinary level yeah. of uh, resistance, a lot, you know, and yeah. anything anything that can be done. It's very poor treatment. It's yeah. not done voluntarily. Mm. Yeah. You have to go to court and get it done. V- very and poor treatment, I think. Uh, most people would yeah. say of victims of uh, child sexual abuse. Uh, I mentioned Justine McCarthy's opinion piece at uh, the beginning of our uh, conversation. Uh, and in that, she writes that because of the way the order have treated the victims and because of how Brother Edmund Garvey introduced this strategy which has led to this treatment uh, that uh, the freedom of Drogheda should be rescinded. Uh, uh, But the outcome of the vote is far from certain uh, as you report on your front page story in the Irish Times today. There's at least one of uh, the 10 councillors who hasn't decided as yet how they're going to vote. Yeah, Michelle Hall, the former mayor, um, she says that, she told me that, well, you know, it's not an inconsiderable thing to do to withdraw uh, the freedom of the city from somebody, and, and it hasn't happened before. And um, um, she also wanted to emphasise, you know, that they're sympathetic to the vi- victims as well. And um, I think the council has adopted a, a a, a motion that was also adopted by Dublin City Council uh, criticising the brothers for um, the legal strategy they've adopted in mm-hmm. the courts when dealing with child sex abuse cases. Um, but uh, 
but but wondering whether you know um, redu- removing this honour from Edmund Garvey is is an appropriate thing to do. Okay. Well, so she she told me she hadn't made up her mind. Yet. A lot of attention on Andrade. No doubt there'll be a lot more attention on Andrade over the course of the next week before the vote on Monday week. But we we'll leave it there for the moment. Colin, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You're more you're more than welcome. Thanks a lot. Nice chatting to you. That's Colin Keener, a journalist with the Irish Times. Michael Reed on LMFM. An email from M. Kelly. Brother Garvey, freedom of Drogheda should be cancelled as a former inmate of uh, their school in Tralee. What nice things can I say about them? As a teaching authority, they no longer exist. I hoped that they had their day and nearly got away with murder. Good riddance. Brother Jack Manning was in Tralee in 1959. Enough said. Thanks, as I say, M. Kelly for your email to the programme. Damien O'Farrell who's been uh, heading up this campaign is also being in touch. He says Mayor Tully as first citizen of Drogheda is asking for a secret vote. It reveals a total lack of understanding and awareness of the origins of clerical and religious child sexual abuse in this country. Is that the same type of secrecy that enabled thousands of people to be abused in Ireland for a public rep to call for a secret ballot on an issue involving victims of clerical and religious child abuse is an absolute scandal and she really needs to reflect on this, says Damien. Damien, thank you indeed. I can't put those uh, points uh, to the mayor. The mayor, as I said earlier on, has never responded to this programme. I don't know why and I'm not joking. Uh, It's an unbelievable, unprecedented situation that the Mayor of Drogheda doesn't speak uh, to LMFM or at least to this programme. Uh, Tony uh, uh, emailing to Dear Michael, victims of sexual, physical and emotional abuse at the hands of the Irish Christian Brothers will not be surprised but nonetheless shocked at the attitude of those councillors in County Louth who were refusing to listen to them and to take the hurt that they're living with seriously. Thank you very much uh, for that uh, as well. Tom is WhatsApping us uh, saying I texted you some time ago about those unelected councillors having a vote in Drogheda. Now one of them is the mayor. And uh, the other two, who no one even knows, uh, are going to vote uh, along with uh, the mayor. The vote will not remove the freedom, and I'll bet my house on that. Keep up the pressure, uh, says Tom. Thank you indeed, uh, Tom, for that. Uh, Baz in touch, uh, uh, texting us, saying, uh, do Christian Brothers get a state pension? Well, I imagine, uh, like anybody else, uh, they do, Baz. Uh, but I, I think uh, there's a bigger point that you're making, and I'm sure that hasn't been missed by people listening. Jerry Navin says, Michael, why do people keep referring to these brothers as Christian? It's an insult to Christ. Uh, says Jerry. Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that, uh, Jerry, and to everybody who has been in touch with us uh, about that particular issue. Uh, I'm sure we'll have more discussion about it on the programme next week. Uh, and I think uh, that if you're in the Drogheda area today, you won't be too proud reading the Irish Times, which uh, is suggesting uh, that this is the third time that Drogheda has turned its back on victims. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty much in line with the point that we've made before. Michael Neary, nobody wanted to know. In fact, they said, shut up, and uh, they rallied around him and supported him against the victims. It was the same with Shine. Uh, And now the councillors will vote on an issue without speaking uh, to the people who have called for the vote. A remarkable situation by anyone's standards. 
but as I say I'm sure we'll hear more about it next week that's our programme for today and this week Maggie McGuire Research Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael God willing we'll see you on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie